Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Tales and Tunes podcast with me, your host, Ben Mielhau. For this week's episode, I got a chance to sit down with Denver's own John Templeton. But before we get into that, we'll start this week's episode off with B-Tsunami's number one track pick of the week. Originally produced by Olaf Stute and released on Morgan.am Records, I give you the Ryan Davis remix of Sumi. Feel free to turn it up, don't be shy.
Hey there, listeners, friends, family, and welcome to the second episode of the Tales and Tunes podcast. I'm super excited about this week's guest, who is and has been a major contributor to the growing underground techno scene in Denver. He's been a DJ for over 14 years, touring all over the U.S. and internationally as well. He's also the founder of the Great American Techno Festival. It's also known as GATF, which is how we will probably be referring to it a lot during the podcast. Um, the one and only John Templeton. Thanks, John. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Appreciate it, Ben. <laughs> yeah, heck yeah, man. I appreciate the intro as well. It caught me a little off guard. <laughs> Just dropping it. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, how's, uh, how's your uh, week and a half been uh since the great american techno festival happened it's been busy it's just trying to wrap up the loose ends after the festival as far as um getting all the feedback that we can from our our staff our customers volunteers our artists as well and on what we did right and hopefully on what we can improve for next year moving forward so just trying to really you want to get while everyone still has ideas that are fresh you want to try and get as much of that down as you can now before moving forward because people have you know the holidays are coming up and next thing you know it's it's 2015 so <laughs> for sure you got some time to relax and stuff though <laughs> uh just a little bit but um you know there's you like i said you just want to get as much done as you can afterwards while the information's still fresh and and hopefully take advantage of that and use that momentum as as well for for moving forward yeah absolutely man yeah, I've had a I've had an interesting past week or so as well. Uh, well. This last week, I lost my fucking phone, and that was a pain in the ass. I actually got my new one in the mail today, so that's good. But uh, I want to tell you about uh, something that happened to me last night. Well, earlier this week, uh, I picked up a uh, Westward uh, like on Sunday, and noticed that. Uh, Monkey Safari was playing at uh, One Up, which Monkey Safari I found me and it's one of my me and my girlfriend's like one of our favorite deep house artists. We actually found out about him through seeing Feather Ricci and uh, learning a lot of what he plays and stuff like that. And uh, you mean so, Paul Feather Ricci from yeah, the yeah. Santa Fe crew? Yeah, from the Santa Fe crew. Very very good. A lot of people have no idea who that is too. But so good to clarify that. But yeah, uh, we, I just, I just randomly saw in Monkey Safaris from Germany and I was like, holy shit, they're playing here in three days. This is like ridiculous. Like why I can't believe we almost missed this. And, um, I was, I was kind of pumped because I don't know if you've been to the new one up on Colfax with their, their new stage and room. It's, it's actually a cool room and like has potential. And uh, the last time I was there, though, it was, you know, it was kind of, it's mostly dubstep shows and stuff like that there, but uh, last time I was there, like, it was a pretty empty room, and I was like, it'd be cool to hear, like, actual music I want to hear here, and like, you know, a full crowd, and so we, we went there, and we're, you know, we're super pumped, and we got there, and uh, there's like a line out the door, and it was a, a bro fest, like, <laughs> like none other, like, I knew, like, maybe three other people there, and I was kind of surprised, because, like, a lot of, I know a lot of people like Monkey Safari, and it's kind of a, well, like I said, it was kind of random that we actually saw that they were playing, but, so they, so they had, like, a trap artist opening for him, so it was already annoying, and it was so packed, and, uh, we were like, well, maybe it'll get better once Monkey Safari gets on, and they got on, and it was the sound there is absolutely the 
disgraceful. Like, you could not hear over the crowd the music. Like, you could barely hear it. And it was like, it was like going to see your favorite art, one of like your favorite artists, but you're deaf. Like, it, it was like so, it was such a horrible like experience. Like, seeing someone that I've been wanting to see for so long and they. <laughs> The, the crowd was annoying and they were talking over the music and you couldn't even enjoy it. So we, we even left like before he was even done. So that was that was kind of a big disappointment when we thought we were going to be seeing something awesome. But yeah, I just thought that would be <laughs> fun to share while uh, while it's fresh in my head and it happened last night. But have you been to one up yet? Have you? I haven't. No. And well, I mean, one... I know some people do some shows there and I've I've heard some good things about it, but. It's definitely a light down to, to hear some of the yeah. see you like that and well, be kind of a flop. Yeah, what what makes it even like worse is that I, I know uh, I think November seventh Luzine is playing there mm-hmm. and he has Anasia opening for him, which is like a big dubstep dubstep artist. So it's like I don't even know that I, I wanna see Luzine. I, I love Luzine, you know, and I don't even I feel bad that he's gonna I felt so bad for Monkey Safari that that, you know, they came all this way and they had to perform under those conditions. I mean, maybe it looked packed and maybe they couldn't tell that it was just a horrible experience. <laughs> well, so. I think for a lot of artists, I think some, you know, obviously it does make a big difference, the type of sound and the aesthetic they're playing. But for other people, I mean, they're pretty cognizant. This was on a, what, a Wednesday night? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's a Wednesday night gig. It's not going to be the the best of the best. You, you're appreciative that you actually are getting paid to work on a Wednesday, I think, for a lot of people. I mean, you know, when you're built in and you're on tour like that with a lot of those artists, the Fridays and Saturdays are kind of guaranteed, but um, to get a Wednesday night gig when you're on tour, especially if you're from Germany like that, you're going to take all the all the kind of work you can get. So I think they were probably just happy or probably even pretty surprised that there was um, a good turnout. I don't, I don't think the sound was as big of an issue um, mm-hmm. to them as it may have been for you. I mean, I think that's a good thing that it was a, that it was an issue. Obviously, with electronic music, if the sound's not very good, it can sound pretty um, pretty stale and pretty boring pretty quick. So all you're getting is kind of a, a kick drum and a hi-hat. But um, I don't know. For them, I think that's an impressive thing that there was a good turnout for a while. Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah. The, yeah, I saw that they are they are playing uh, all up the West Coast this uh, this uh, weekend and stuff. So I'm sure this was just kind of like a, like, like I said, we just found out about it. So it must've been like a last minute, you know, like, Oh, we can stop and make some money here and stop through Denver or whatever. So I could interject there. I mean, you could delete this out if you want, but, um, I'll just say my name's Ryan. I'm hanging out here too, but I went there on a Wednesday night to see Samo Soundboy, um, with my girlfriend. This is probably a month and a half, two months ago. She really wanted to go. He's like big with DJ Dodger Stadium right now. I think he just did an RA podcast. Um, Marcello Moxie in town was a resident there. I think he ended up opening, although he got there later. And then, like, I think it did shift to some, like, trap DJ or something ridiculous. And then Samo Samboy comes on and like, plays really good stuff. And then after him was, like, a horrid, like, terrible like, uh. DJ. So the curation there is, like, ridiculous. It's so bad. Yeah, I have no idea. It's like, and the, the sound, I wouldn't describe it as, as bad as you described it, but it was pretty, like, it could have been tuned way better for sure. Mm-hmm. But from the artist standpoint, they're being paid. The room was packed to the gills. 
Like, it took me five minutes. I mean, minutes it's impressive for Wednesday, especially for Denver. That's something that I don't think most people would have expected a long time. Well, I think it's 18 and up, which really helps. Yeah. Well, that also helps. Okay. really helps. So, it definitely wasn't a crowd. Well, it's a, it's, is it not like the one downtown? It's a video game place, is it not? But yeah. it's the one that just opened up on Colfax. Correct. But I'm saying the, oh, the sure. pieces of it is like it's an arcade. Correct. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you're, yeah. you're just going for a generally younger clientele. Yeah. Anyway. So, you're not going for, as we were talking about with the... With the other place, the social club that opened up downtown, you know. Oh, yeah. Just completely opposite sets of clientele that people are going for with their little dance clubs. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's it's cool to see it happening here in Denver. I mean, sure, I wish it was different, but it is what it is. Mm-hmm. I just thought I'd throw that in there. Yeah, that's totally No, it's a, that's I've been there on a Wednesday night. Yeah, yeah, so that's interesting that they can't pack it out on a Wednesday like that. And but I think that's a good thing. I'll also yeah. say, I don't think I've ever gone back there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was just too much to deal with. Well, yeah. I, I haven't gone, but um, I mean, obviously, I live five blocks away, so I shouldn't probably check it it's out. It's worth taking a look, I guess. Yeah. Take yeah, I'm debating whether or not to. To go to Luzine because it was such a disappointment seeing. Well, how much? Respect. How much is the cover to go? The uh, we bought them online advance. It was fifteen for two. Fifteen so. bucks for two. Yeah. I mean that's not bad at all. Yeah, I mean it was ten bucks at the door, but yeah. I mean for Lucene, I know you're a big Lucene fan. I mean I think that's something worth doing. You know. Yeah, I mean at least the money is going to him. I mean at least a portion of it. You yeah, know? I mean he's not gonna be cheap. Um, mm-hmm. But I mean you you at least know that um, going into it that. Um, Next time, what to expect? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Maybe put in a comment, <laughs> complaint. <laughs> How can we improve your business? Yeah, just comment card. Ask them if they have any comment cards that you can put in the box. Yeah. <laughs> Less games, more sound. <laughs> but uh, well, yeah. Any, anyways, uh, we, uh, me and John. Uh, let me think. The first time I met you, John was. Uh, we, there was a little event, it would have been last, no, two summers ago, actually, now. Uh, it was a little event you had at the wood shop um, north of downtown Denver, this warehouse. Uh, it was a Sunday day party, and uh, it was like a free event you put on, and it was like a barbecue, and you had people playing, you know, good music all day, and then uh, in the evening, uh, uh, everything kind of settled down, and you guys uh, played the movie uh, No Country for Old Men and had uh, two artists, two ambient artists uh, create the live soundtrack for the movie because the movie has no soundtrack. So that was, uh, well, what was going on then? Or that, I mean, when, when I met you, that that was the wood shop. Well, I mean, I guess the, basically the premise of that was we just had a warehouse that we, we rented and used as a practice space and used for shows when we wanted to have artists that we had in. But I think what made the place um, a little different was the fact that we didn't have to force it. Well, I mean, it wasn't something that I ever made money off of, but it was more fun to do something such as what you're talking about, where we just have what we just call it movie night, um, where you just have movie night and just try and take it and be a little bit more creative with it than um, just having some people over to your house and play music, or as opposed to just using the space and just having a party there like everyone else wants to do at the warehouse it was uh, more appealing for us to try and um, just take what we normally do and just give a just give a little spin on it so um, that wasn't something that we felt like you charge money for it was just something that um, 
you know, just have your, to be able to have your friends over like you would at your house. You wouldn't charge people to come over to your house. So why charge them to come over to the space? We'll just, you can just have a few more people over and, uh, because we have the sound system there and you can set up and you can play music. And it was also an opportunity to give people a chance to play on the sound system. Um, friends that necessarily don't get to play at the club or don't get to play at our parties because we don't throw a lot of parties. Um, just a chance for them to get to play on the sound system for their friends. Yeah. So. Yeah, it was, it was totally cool because that was early on when me and my girlfriend moved here and it was, you know, kind of a, a gathering that wasn't like, you know, an all-night thing where uh, music's loud and all that. We could actually get to meet people. So I remember that being a, a, a pretty big day for us just uh get meeting you and and a bunch of other really cool people so that's cool i shouldn't have let you in since it's your first time <laughs> well i had been to the the droid party that was actually that still doesn't get you in i, don't <laughs> I well we knew brooks See, that so. just shows the downfall i don't have a place like that anymore is because i would let anyone come in and yeah and that's what happens <laughs> you let you let too many people in and so <laughs> Before we get into a whole bunch of talks about uh, like the wood shop and uh, the Great American Techno Fest- Festival and such, uh, let's uh, just kind of meet you and who who you are and where you came from and everything. So, uh, where so yeah, where are you from? Where were you born uh, and raised, or did you move around a lot? Um, no, I was. I grew up in Virginia. Eighteen years. I grew up in the southwest part of the state, um, right where Tennessee and North Carolina come together as opposed to the D.C. or Richmond area, which most people are kind of familiar with. Um, I went to school for 18 years there and then went to college in Mississippi before venturing down to New Orleans. That's where I basically got into dance music, was living in New Orleans um, vicariously from going to college in Mississippi. And then when I was 21, dropped out of school and then moved out to Colorado, not because of a music thing, but just to drop out of school and be able to ski in the winter and backpack in the summer and and, and do that sort of thing. Um, it's, you know, worked advantageously moving out here for a, for a music standpoint because it wasn't as established as maybe a, a New York or a Los Angeles or San Francisco or something, but, um, but yeah, I've been here 11 years now. It's August of 2003 that I moved out, so uh, I've been here a while, and I mean, I guess I consider Colorado home. I don't know. Um, yeah, growing up, uh, did you, uh, what was your interest in music? Uh, did you, Was your family into music? Did you, did you play instruments growing up? Or I always played instruments growing up. It wasn't that I necessarily had a musical family. I wouldn't say that, like... Um, you know, it wasn't those, even though I kind of grew up in Appalachia, where I think there's, music is definitely a tradition where I grew up, and you have the, like, uh, you know, family sitting around the piano, and, you know, mama sang tenor, and daddy sang bass. I mean, that happens where I grew up, and that's where Bluegrass is from. Uh, the first country music song was recorded in Bristol, Tennessee. Uh, actually, I think it's the Virginia side. The people from back there would kill me if I said that, but I think it was recorded in Bristol, Virginia. Um... So, like, the music tradition is very big where I'm from. In my family, not so much. Um, we were one of those families that had a piano. And as a kid, I had piano. I took violin lessons first. I think that was at four years old. And I couldn't stand violin. Just mm-hmm. the, the, the 
whole concept of it I couldn't stand so I was able to talk my way into piano lessons and did piano from five years old to about 12 or 13 and I hated piano and by that point I was playing guitar I think by the time I'd gotten to about one of my older cousins on my mom's side played guitar and I thought that was cool one of my older cousins older than him played drums and they were both pretty talented and so that got and they were playing rock music and, and kind of my older sister who's eight years older than me and my cousins they were they were into rock and that sort of stuff so I wanted to play guitar at a pretty early age so probably by the time about third or fourth grade I started playing guitar and then I was able to get out of piano lessons and then get a guitar lessons and then by the time I got into sixth grade that's when concert band started so I joined in percussion for concert band so concert band from sixth then through twelfth grade and then I did marching band from eighth grade through twelfth grade as well so pretty much like from the time I could learn to even even before I learned to read and write I was doing music so uh, it was something that just came naturally, and then when I went to college, um, when I was in high school, I, I you know, piano wasn't something I ever wanted to do. I, I wanted to play rock, man. I mean, like I was a child of the late '80s, early '90s. I grew my hair long so I could headbang like a fucking idiot and be on stage and shit. Um, and that's what I wanted to do. And by the time I got into high school, rock was dying. It was. I went to high school from 1996 to 2000, and so. By that point, rock is dying out, and I had gotten into punk rock and hardcore, had the flying V and shaved my head. I mean, I was a total poser, to be honest. Um, but, like, that's what I thought was cool. I thought that kind of, even though I didn't grow up working class, I thought that kind of working class rock mentality was something that, for some reason, I identified with. And so I really liked that, embraced that. A lot of my friends did. And um, so I went to college in Mississippi. And I didn't really go to college in Mississippi because I, I wanted to go to school in Mississippi. No one says, hey, you know, I'm going to go to college all, all places. I'm going to go to Mississippi. Um, it's basically I wanted out of Virginia. I really did. And most of the colleges that I wanted to get into were in the Northeast because, again, I was, in a, I was in a punk rock and hardcore. So I wanted to go to like NYU or yeah. Boston College or Boston University. And I didn't get in any of them. So I ended up going to this college in Mississippi called Millsaps College that both of my parents had gone to. How far from home was that? It was 10 hours away, and that's why I went that far, because I, the only other schools I got into were in Virginia. It was UVA and Virginia Tech, and I was going to be damned if I was going to stay in Virginia. I was just gone, man. <laughs> so, like, even if it was Mississippi, as long as it was Mississippi, it was still going to, like, my parents would have to notify me before they came to see me type of thing. Um, so I went to Mississippi, and I actually really enjoyed my time there while I was there, but the problem was um, no one was in punk rock. And so I had a buddy at, at 18 years old who was probably like my second or probably like my second month at school who's like, hey, do you want to go to rave and go to a rave in New Orleans? I was like, sure, it sounds good to me. So we go to this rave and it ended up being Moonshine of America, which was a tour back then. Um, right as kind of the rave movement was dying and EDM was starting to spawn. This was 2000. This 2000? was October of 2000. Oh, okay. And it was... Carl Cox and Cirrus and Dara and Diesel Boy and AK-1200. That sort of stuff. And that was my, my first introduction to it. And that was in New Orleans. In New Orleans, I was, in, I was going to school in Jackson, Mississippi. Jackson was about a two and a half, three hour drive from New Orleans. So that was just like the natural progression. Then at that point was on the weekend, you know, every other weekend, at least once a month, going down to New Orleans and going to parties and going to shows there. And so that was my introduction into electronic music. And then 
a guy I met through school. He had turntables. So, um, as a there was no one to be in a band with. There was no one to play punk rock with. So, the good thing about DJing was at least I had a buddy that had turntables and I could buy records and then just go over to his place and play records, mm -hmm. right? And then he had records, I had records. You were sharing music, you were learning music from the other person. And that was what was kind of cool about it, you know, like this little small group that we had. We at least could play music together, share music together, and that was kind of, you know, what got me into the whole rabbit hole mm. and then fell down into DJing at that point. Yeah. All right, so yeah, just going back, uh, you're talking about your first party here in New Orleans. What, what was that experience like? Oh, the first party was fucking insane. Um, so, used to be parties in New Orleans. Have I ever told you the story around the back? Yeah, we were talking about the other day. My first ever rave, yeah. yeah. So, parties in New Orleans, they were done by Disco Donnie. That was like the guy. And so, late 90s, early, basically the late 90s, New Orleans scene was like one of the biggest ones in the country. And I didn't know this. I was coming from Virginia. So, I get to New, I get down there and everyone's like, oh my God, New Orleans rave scene, you're going to love it. You're going to State Palace Theater, which is this gigantic theater right in the middle of New Orleans on Canal Street in the French Quarter. For those who've never been there, State Palace Theater, it's, you could fit five to 7,000 people in there. There's a gigantic main floor. The first probably 50 rows of seats are taken out, so it's a gigantic dance area, but you can still, there's still another 50 seats, 50 rows of seats on the main floor to sit. There's a balcony and a mezzanine, so you have two other levels that you can just get up and overlook the main floor. I mean, it's gigantic. There's a jungle room that had probably three or 400 people that you could do in the jungle room where they would have you know, AK-1200, uh, you know, Lisa Lashes, um, LTJ Buchum, Andy C, stuff like that would be in a jungle room. And then you'd have stuff like Sasha and Digweed or Deep Dish, Josh Link, stuff like that on the main floor. And then they had a record shop in there. It was amazing. So, St. Palace Theater was the place that, that you were supposed to go. So, that's where Moonshine of America, my first rave, was supposed to be. However, the first, the party one month prior to this at State Palace Theater was busted under the Rave Act, basically the crack house law that uh, Vice President Joe Biden, who was a senator from Delaware at the time, it was something that he, legislation that he had helped enact. So literally it was like DEA, FBI, Jefferson Parish, sheriffs, I mean the entire, the whole, the whole nine yards raided State Palace Theater. The two brothers who owned it and Disco Donnie were all arrested so the Moonshine Over America party could not happen at State Palace Theater. It had to get moved. So where did it get moved? But a country western bar out in the suburbs in Metairie. <laughs> and when you sh when we showed up there, I mean, I'd never gone to a rave before. You know, all I'm thinking about is like a bunch of kids everywhere and stuff. As we're going in, there are cop cars everywhere. They are lining the streets. I mean, it's just blue lights. There's so many fucking cop cars. There's a cop bus. There's a bus. It's like a Jefferson Parish Sheriff's <laughs> bus. Like, I'm freaking out. You know, like, oh my god, we're going to jail, man. Like, and there's nobody there. Like, we get in, they pat us down like it's going out of style. Like, I'm pretty sure, like, a couple different people's fingers went out my butt. And then, like, by the time we it's got like inside, yeah, I mean, like, they're really, they're really checking you, you know, like, and by the time we got in there, you know, there's no one in there. There's cops on the side. They're, like, filming, like, the 20 kids that are in there dancing. They're filming them dancing, you know. They've got, like, the yellow jackets on. It was surreal. Um, and when you walk inside the venue, there's a giant flag on the left wall that says, American by birth, American flag. And then on the right wall, there's a Stars and Bars Confederate flag that says, Southern by the Grace of God. 
I mean, it's a fucking country western redneck bar. And Carl Cox refused to play. So, like, he was, like, the one dude who I'd heard about ahead of time that I'd, like, listened to a mix of his and thought this was going to be cool. He even refused to play. But the other people that did play, it was good, and it was just such a surreal experience that I, even then, you know, I just had, the, like, the anti-rave experience, but I was hooked. I thought that was fantastic. <laughs> Obviously, I wanted to see what, what real raves were, and then uh, Disco Donnie, and then the State Palace Theater, the brothers that own there, they got that worked out, and were, were able to go back there. So, um, by about 2001, this was October of 2000, by about 2001, State Palace Theater was open again, and then for about two, three years, I got to, to see parties there, which was, oh. which was really cool. Awesome, so. yeah. Glad they were able to start to do shows there again. Did you uh, listen to electronic music at all before your first party, or was that kind of like your introduction? Well, it depends was... what you define as electronic music. Dance music, I would say no. I mean, when I was in high school, yeah, uh, punk rock and hardcore were my thing, but there was also like this kind of group of like, you know, what... You know, now would be like the computer nerd kids. Back then, it was like the Dungeons and Dragons kind of, dragons kind of magic crew dudes. But they were I, into ICQ or what's, what's that called? ICQ, the yeah. chat room, the old chat room. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, they were into industrial music. So f- by the time I was like fourteen, fifteen, we started listening to stuff like KMFDM, Skinny Puppy. Front 242, craft work, that sort of side. So mm-hmm. there was like this group of friends, they kind of pseudo-crossed over. I had, a, I had a few friends that crossed over that were into the punk rock and then this um, industrial electronic thing. So that sort of stuff appealed to me. I was really into KMFDM. I really liked Skinny Puppy. That was a staple kind of all throughout high school. Um, so that was definitely my first. But, but yeah, it was like by the time 2000 rolled around and it wasn't until like you know, September, uh, October of 2000 that I, I really, <laughs> excuse me, um, really, really found out about dance music. And then that was like Carl Cox first and then John Digweed and Sasha and, um, Deep Dish and, and that sort of stuff. Like, you know, really as progressive was really starting to pick up, um, pick up steam in 99 and 2000. And then it kind of faded off really quickly. Well, that's when I caught on. Gotcha. Um, what else in, in high school were you into, like, hobbies and stuff? I mean, you, you might still be to today. Hobbies. Well, I mean, my parents wouldn't let me have, have not, I couldn't have idle time. I had to be doing an activity after school. So, you know, it was marching band in the fall, and then it was... What'd you play? I was in percussion, so I played... Quads? Um, I never played quads. I did pit, bass drum, and then snare drum junior and senior year. Oh, gotcha. Um, in the winter I did, uh, theater we had at Abingdon High School, the high school I went to, it was called One Act Play, so it was like a 35 minute play, that was a competition. Um, academic team, and then baseball in the spring, I always did baseball, I did baseball all all four years of high school, and, um, I hated it at the time, looking back on it, I actually really did enjoy baseball, but, yeah, just... Just whatever I did. I was in Boy Scouts as well. Um, most people, I think, would say they had a nightmare experience in Boy Scouts. I loved it. I loved it too, man. Um, you know, I should have had my eagle, but paperwork fucked me out of that, man. Yeah, I had, how I you did you did your you did your project. I did my or, eagle project yeah. and everything, man. It was, it was a matter of days and, and paperwork. Not you like I'm an I'm an eagle scout, but not on paper. It's, Dude, that's fucked up. I can't believe they didn't make some kind of exception for that. That's insane, man. 
Because my older brother was one too. You right? went through the review. You did the whole nine yards. Everything. It was. It was like stupid. No. <laughs> that, doesn't, that doesn't surprise me. That's really. I mean, I got into the schools I wanted to, so I mean, there's that. But that's yeah. pretty cool. I don't, I don't regret. Well, it doesn't matter now. I mean, being an Eagle yeah. Scout matters, like maybe when you're 16, 17, yeah. 18. Whatever no one I still now, put it on my resume. Bro. It doesn't matter, dude. I'm an Eagle Scout as well. I haven't put that on my resume since I was 18 years yeah. old. No one gives a fuck. <laughs> you know, I mean, seriously, now it's almost, there's almost a stigma with it, like especially out here in Colorado. It's I didn't like, know oh, you're a Boy Scout. You're fucking conservative, you know. <laughs> You anti-gay, super-Christian conservative is almost what it's kind of implying. <laughs> not, that, not that my troop was that way anyway, but yeah. um, it does have that implication. Though. My troop is all... That's crazy. I didn't know you were an Eagle Scout. So. Did you Did you go to Philmont ever? I did do Philmont. Yeah, oh. I did Philmont in between sophomore... Or no, freshman and sophomore years. Philmont kicked Two ass, years. man. Yeah, I loved no, it. No, 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 no. Just one year, but it was in the oh, summer between okay, freshman and sophomore. And then I think in between eighth and ninth grade year, we did Tenerman Canoe Base, which is up in Ontario. It's like a, it's like Philmont, but it's canoeing. You're out canoeing oh, wow. for like ten days at a time. Yeah, I thought, I thought Scouts was awesome. I, mean, I did too, man. Yeah. You know, I, where I grew up in Virginia was right along the mountains, so we were right along the Appalachian Trail. So for us, that was you know camping and backpacking. That was like what you did, and Scouts was just the avenue to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and we did a lot of really awesome trips. I mean, you go to North Carolina, Kentucky, West Virginia, but even mainly in Virginia, there with Grayson Highland State Park and then Mount Rogers, which is the highest mountain in Virginia. It's over a mile high. It's like shade over, no, shade under 6,000 feet. I don't think Virginia has a 6,000 foot peak. North Carolina has a couple, but um, there was great backpacking and great hiking. And I mean, I loved that. I mean, I think a lot of kids had really crappy scout troops, you know, mm-hmm. and they had to wear their uniforms all the time, they tied knots and, you know, did, did that, you know, did Klondike Derby and, and Pinewood Derby and that sort of nonsense, you know, for us it was, you know, it was like life skills, it was wilderness survival, it was, you know, Oh yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. We had, we had an awesome camp in Iowa, I went like 12 years in a row and well, worked there. Did you guys do initiations there? Oh, eh? Did you no order of the arrows awful? Don't I mean don't be mistaken. <laughs> no, it was cool at the time. Uh, but now I look back. Carl who's just here. We talked about what a what a joke what a joke order of the arrow is. Slave labor. I mean, obviously, you know, oh my god, you're not supposed to talk about it either. How dare you talk about OA to outsiders or whatever? Just what a crock! It's like just pretend a cult, by the way. Like it's basically pretend. It's Boy Scout pretend Freemasons. Yeah. You know, it's like that's what the Freemasons do. That's like what the Boy Scouts want to do to pretend they're Freemasons is order the arrow. They're like, it's just fucking nonsense. So. <laughs> Did you do OA? Yeah, I was yeah. in order the arrow. Oh, oh, you're right. Up. I mean, it is. It is. Before you're in OA, you're like, you really you want, want that arrow. So you want to get you tapped out. You're waiting arrow. for that person yeah. to yeah. tap you out. <laughs> And then you're yeah, in there and you're like, you're like, this is so stupid. I'm not eating. I can't talk. Like, there's some... And, and like, the Indian ceremony, that's the worst. The Indian ceremony that they do, it's so fucking racist. Like, oh, yeah. A bunch of white dudes dress up in Indian costumes and stuff. Like, this is... You know, like, now looking back on, like, how extremely fucking racist it is that they that they actually do that. It's it's uh, pr- it's really fucked up, but... 
Yeah. You know, at the time, you're absolutely right. You want to be an OA so that you want that goddamn arrow. Yeah. You, especially <laughs> as an Eagle Scout, you don't want to be an Eagle not an OA. That's like, that's like a oh, bad yeah, thing. Yeah, 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 for sure. It's like, why are you an Eagle and not an OA? That's, yeah. that's like a huge deal. And so, now those kids that went on and got their... Uh, uh, the two stripes at the end, whatever the hell, Brotherhood or whatever it is. Yeah, Brotherhood and like... Oh, jeez. But it's like, after you get Eagle, you can get like... There's some shit. Oh, there. Eagle Palms. The Palms. Yeah, the Palms. Palms. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, those kids are the worst. <laughs> like you're done. Like yeah, you're, you're, you don't have yeah, to keep doing this. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, you got eagle palms. Yeah, like my, okay. So the truth that I was in, we're totally derailing your podcast. Oh, is, no, I love this. Man. This is great. The truth that I was in, you know, when we were in, it was that was the thing. You got your eagle. We're grabbing our dark. You were done. No one stayed in after that, right? But um, now the truth is like it's so much more prissy and clean and like. There are kids now that have like three or four palms, right? It goes, you know, bronze, silver, gold, and then you do bronze, silver, gold again. You get more and more and more. Like, the, my dad was telling me there was like one kid who had like 50 merit badges. Like, 50, I mean, like, come on, come on man. Like, seriously, like, that's literally saying you've never kissed a girl. Like, you just, you've given up all hope of ever kissing a girl. Uh, or that your yeah. parents signs off on everything. I no, or that just also like says that. You, your, your dad is in computer science for a living. Like, you, you know, like. Yeah. Or as an accountant, you know, like there's just there's ugh, those kids. <laughs> but for the like the adults and stuff that did get vigil honor in order of the era, I was always like really respectful. That, of them. Yeah. I was like, damn, like you, you stuck it out, like <laughs> yeah, man. Or yeah, era, any, everything tough. else is just like fucking retarded. Order yeah. the arrows tough. Yeah, scouts was awesome. I thought scouts was awesome. Mm-hmm. Order the arrows where it like becomes cultish, where the, it's just like a little too. Yeah, completely. <laughs> Well, yeah, that's cool, man. I had no idea we had that common ground. <laughs> I think a lot of people, you know, it's like, it's like being a homosexual. It's like scouts are like closet, you know. People, you yeah, have, yeah. You have to be comfortable to say that around other people that you're... Oh, yeah. In high school, know. like, it was like... You, I didn't, like, say it ever. Well, <laughs> like, I, I didn't... I I didn't no, no, no. Time, See, so. I, would, I would not even say that then. In scouts, I was... In high school, I was proud of being in scouts. It's like ex, after scouts. Out here, it's... Uh, in Colorado, especially, it's... It seems like a very anti-Boy Scouts type of state. To me, that's yeah. my, my impression for having lived here 11 years. You know, and that's something that my dad always says to me. He's like, you know, you know you're know, you single, you, you know, you need you don't have a family. You need to be involved in community service. You know, you need to be in a scout troop or be an assistant scoutmaster. I'm like, you know, that's what child molesters do. You know, 30-year-old single dudes who aren't married <laughs> that are assistant scoutmasters. That's sexual predators. I'm sorry. Like, yeah. I know it sounds good, and I should get back, but I, you know, in this town, that's unfortunately. Yeah. I I get involved once I had a kid, but yeah, exactly. I mean, why don't I just go ahead and register as a sex offender while I'm at it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Get two birds stoned at once. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, anyways, let's uh, get get back on a path here. Uh, so yeah, what what uh what made you want to start DJing? Was it was it that first party you went to or no they, no 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 not at all. That's that's the most cliche shit, and I can't stand it when someone's like, "Oh, I saw so and so DJ up there, and that made me want to do it." The only reason I DJed is like I said, I wanted to be in a punk rock band, and there was no one to play instruments with. So at least DJing, I could play by myself. I mean, I wanted to be in a band. I didn't want to play by myself. I like. Like, even today, even though I still DJ, there's something I have more fun doing a hardware set or playing in a band with someone, playing instruments. Just that symbiotic relationship that you have creating music together and improv. Um, just 
knowing what you're going to do, knowing what I'm going to do, that intuition just playing it, that's still so much better. So that's not what got me into DJing. It was, I didn't have anyone else to play with. You know, I mean, like, it was it was a way that I could play and still be involved in music and not have to depend on someone. Yeah. Not have to get two other people to practice together. Even when you're in a band with people, it's very difficult, you know? I mean, my vision is not your vision. It's not the third person or fourth person's vision. You have to have leadership. Excuse me. You have to have leadership. You need to have vision. And you also need to be on the same page and have people, excuse me, that are musically on the same page. So, you know, it's not it's not easy at all. It's, um, you know, with not necessarily the background that I've had in music, but just the fact that I've been in music for so long. I had going, doing a kind of solo act and having being autonomous with it was not hard just simply for the fact that, like, I had done the percussive element with drums. I had done a rhythm element with guitar. I had done kind of a lead element with piano. Um, I just kind of had an idea of song structure and that sort of stuff through mm-hmm. before. DJing was just the natural progression, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you're not writing the songs, you're just sculpting the set. You're taking the movements of a symphony. And it's super, oh, it's very hippie to say almost, but it. It is the same thing. It's like, you know, a, you don't judge a symphony by the individual movements. You judge it by the entirety of the symphony, right? Well, DJing is the same thing. You're taking the individual movements. You're putting it together to create an entire hour course or two-hour course. Or I, I can't stand the, the terms journey or story, but they can be apropos at times. You know, that you're, you're trying to have an arc with what you're doing. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, absolutely. And even though you're not... Uh, well, like you were saying, you want to be, you prefer to work with people, that, that symbiotic relationship musically, through music that you share when you're performing with others. That's what's kind of cool about electronic music is that it's music created by someone and you're taking it and you could mix it with somebody else's idea from, you know, clear across the other. Yeah, the I would world, almost you know argue I mean? that's the, in, it's entirely the problem with it. The is problem. that is that it's gotten so individualized that even now, okay, part of the reason I've gotten back to playing vinyl, because for years I played vinyl, and then it was vinyl and CDs, and then I did an Ableton Live setup, it was just me, right? I was like, fuck this, I'm just gonna be all autonomous myself, and write all my beats, and do Ableton Live, and do like a live little keyboard show. But the problem is you're just removing it, it's now going all solo, it's not collaborative anymore. And where it originally started, and I was playing records, it would be like my buddy Joey playing records and I would play records and Alan would play records and we would just all share music. Now, it's gotten to where you have your individual setup, you set up with your computer, you play for your hour, now I'm going to set up my little setup, I play for an hour, now you play, there's there's no sharing music anymore. It's like, yeah, we're playing other people's stuff, but it's all like, watch me, let me have like my single hour mm-hmm. of solo time. And I feel like that's just a huge problem with it. It's gotten Americanized, whereas like when dance music, Tom Cox, a Pittsburgh track authority who we had play for us with GATF this year, wrote a fantastic article for dance ma- or for Attack Magazine saying dance music needs to get focused back on the DJ, on not on the DJ but on the dance party. And the problem is that's what ha- he was using Boiler Room as an example. But I would actually go one step further and say the fact that you know now that bands have died off and that you know the concert this this concert. 
festival series has died off where it used to be bands. Now it's a DJ on stage. But we're just used to that model. It's it's you're on stage and it's got to be lights and boom boom boom. Like I've got to be entertained from like twenty from like three hundred sixty degrees. Like everywhere I look, you know, it's like the same thing. Even you're at, you're at a sporting event, right? Mm-hmm. Like as soon as the game stops, it's like fireworks and like blood dropping shit down. It's like <laughs> you're like bombarded, right? And music playing. Yet like the full time, there's like you have no break. And it's the same way at a concert. It's just like you just gotta be bombarded. It's dance music, man. It's not supposed to be you're staring at the person on the stage. And you're you're focusing, and the lights are in your eyes, and you're just you're supposed to have boner because of like how amazingly like, entertainment it is. It's dance music. You're supposed to dance. It's a dance party. Focus on the, just like zone out in music, and like and just focus on your dancing and the people that are around you, and the dancing on that. So not to go on a total tirade there with what you said, but um, I feel like that is the problem with electronic mm-hmm. music. It's gotten so individualized that it's not. You know, one of the things that was, was so refreshing about Mutech this year in Montreal, the Mutech Festival, was on the last day when it was Nico Jar at uh, it was the Museum of Contemporary Art, and I think it was this Dark Side Nico Jar's thing that he does with Dave Harrington. Uh-huh. Anyways, Nico Jar and Dave Harrington upstairs doing their little thing, and but downstairs was all the old school Montreal guys. It was like. The Mole, Guillaume and the Coco Dumas, Ben Neville, uh, Mike Shannon. It was like all the old school Montreal guys just having gigantic hardware jam. And I'm, I'm not a jam band guy, but it was just really cool to see this improv, to see these guys smiling and laughing and dancing, playing music together. And it's just like the antithesis of what you see with music now. Mm. It's just, it's so like you play, then I play, then he plays, and she plays, and um, it was just really cool to see that collaborative effort again um, of just like kind of live spontaneity that mm-hmm. I feel we've lost and that's something that I really enjoy about playing vinyl now is what's great about playing records is like I got some records you got some records you got some records let's play mm-hmm. you know and when we had our decompression party two weekends ago after GATF Kate Lester who runs Community Festival was asking me alright what are the time slots you want for the DJs to play and I said I don't want time slots let's just let people play when they want to play and she's like oh no 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 we need to have time slots and, and uh, the bunker crew who was here they were saying same thing, oh yeah you gotta have time slots and you know people just they, they just get sensitive and they run rampant and I think and people get all upset well that's the problem it's because everyone's got to set their stupid setup up and I'm playing when I play and you play when you play as it was like you play a couple of tracks or hey man that was a cool mix do you mind if I play the one after this and you're like yeah man that's song you play do you mind if I get next like yeah sure like it's sharing music together it's playing music together I don't know I feel like we've lost that and if we can get back to that it'll be the music in and of itself will get better because when it's a sharing and people are listening yeah. and kind of experiencing it together, we're not even going to have the same interpretation together. You're going to interpret it one way, I interpret it another way, she interprets, you know, a completely other way, and then the music in and of itself, the art changes as a result. So. Is that is that going in, on anywhere in the world? Where, or, like, is there a party that's notorious where it is just a big... I mean, even if it's not hardware, if it's just, like, people playing on... Vinyl or CD, I mean, just like jam sessions. Is, is are there any parties that are I'm sure like notorious for that? I'm sure. I would I would really hate to say no with all the different stuff that's going on, but you know, I mean, there's not enough of it. Obviously, well, there's the open deck stuff that happens all the time. Um, that's like open mic. You know, it just depends who you book as a crew. You know, you book like a Bangkok Marcel Detman or Bangkok and DB Swan. They're going to play off 
each other the whole time. Mm-hmm. You know, they're just going to play it over and over. There's certain duos that are like that. But the best is when you get those duos that have never played together. And then you make them do that sort of stuff. And then, you know, it's like at the beginning of the night, they're like the dudes aren't even talking to each other. And, you know, like, <laughs> what's he playing? And, the other dude. and then by the end of the night, you know, they're spilling drinks on each other, high five, arm around the shoulder. Like, that's fucking awesome, man. And, like, you know, it's so cliche to say it. But that really is music bringing people together in that element. And that doesn't happen enough. And... That's something that I really try. I don't feel like I do enough of a job. I feel like I preach it more than I actually practice, actually. But that's something that I don't feel like we foster enough is trying to get people in a room together and just kind of play music. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why, I mean, you know, just to kind of tie back to what you were talking about with Woodshop earlier, you know, that first time that you came there, that's exactly what we were trying to do. It's like just trying to get people together in a room and you can play music on the big system if you want to and like instead of just having a regular movie night let's have like live improv ambient hardware jam with it you know from guys by the way you you know you were saying ambient artists those guys normally do techno mm-hmm. you know so it's like let's take techno people and put them out of you know not necessarily out of their element but just have them do all ambient let's have them do a soundtrack to a movie and, and yeah totally well Going along with this, I guess we this this kind of good segue for. Uh, so you moved to Denver here thirteen years ago, or eleven years ago. You said right, eleven years ago. Okay, so when you moved here, uh, what what was the electronic music state of the town or the scene or? Well, I mean, I didn't move here at the time to dive in electronic music. It wasn't like I moved here and wanted to be a DJ. Mm-hmm. I moved here because I wanted to ski thirty to fifty times a year um, so I moved up to Boulder up in the mountains at that point but then after two years you know I missed it and I wanted to get back into it and I wanted to start pursuing it a little more um, Boulder just wasn't happening at that time um, granted when I moved to Boulder I didn't live in the city I lived up in Four Mile Canyon so it was mm-hmm. about 10 miles outside of the city way up in the fucking mountains how'd you land that spot? well I mean I had some friends from Mississippi that had already moved out to Colorado and then when their lease was up, was their lease was up at, at the end of July, beginning of August. So it was one of those, they were moving and, you know, I'd said, look, if I'm moving out to Colorado, I want to just move right in the mountains. I don't want to half-ass it, you know. I want to, like, just live up at 7,000, 8,000 feet, you know, not at 5,000 feet. So that was fun. I lived in that house for two years and I loved it, but then I just had to itch and... Um, Boulder used to have a club called Soma and Soma had people like Nick Warren and Jimmy Van M and Hybrid and stuff like that that played there but it closed right before I mean like months before I moved to Boulder so Boulder really didn't have anything that I knew I didn't know the community crew by then even though they were doing stuff it was way under the radar stuff that I was just missing so I moved to Denver and then initially just started um going to vinyl going to the church you know these random venues but um, it just slowly I just built a network and through message boards this is back the pre-Facebook and Twitter days hmm. so so then you moved moved from Boulder after two years you moved back you moved to Denver then I moved to Denver yeah I just felt like Denver was 
And I mean, I guess it was probably right on that. I just felt like Denver was more of a place that had had stuff going on as far as for what I was trying to do. And then, and then at that point, I guess by that point, I became a little more focused that that's 23, 24, just wanting to have a sort of somewhat of career. Not a career, but semi-hobby, semi-pro-hobby of, of doing music a little for, more for time. So, how did Denver affect you as a DJ? I mean, I wouldn't say... It, well, With I mean, I guess it does. the scene, or, or... So, when you moved to Denver, did you start doing shows, or were you putting yourself out there as a DJ, or... No, I mean, I didn't do any shows when I moved here. I mean, I... You know, I thought... I was like everyone. Um, I think it, it happens with a lot of people where you're in your 20s, or you feel like you're, you're talented or whatever, and then just people aren't giving you a shot. So, you know, when I moved here, it was 2005, okay, I moved to Colorado in 2003, and I moved to Denver in 2005. I mean, it wasn't until 2009, 2010 that I was actually, anyone was booking me to play anything. And for the longest time, I was like, you know, I'm talented, and people should be booking me, and, you know, I play gigs in Mississippi and New Orleans, and, you know, like, I don't understand why people don't book me. Well, you know, it's just hard to kind of see your own reality sometimes. And the reality was, what do I have to offer? I'm another white dude trying to DJ. What make, what is really going to make me special? Why, why, why would people really book me? I mean, yeah, I think the songs I write are cool. My girlfriend thinks some of the songs I write are cool, but she's going to tell me that. Are they really that cool? You know I mean? She's sleeping with me. She wants to think that stuff's cool. You're not going to want to think that the person you're with their art sucks, you know? So it's, you know, it was one of those things where it took a long time and no one was booking me. And then no one was booking the stuff that I wanted to bring in. So we decided, all right, let's try and do our own shows. Let's try and book our own stuff. Well, I couldn't even find a venue at that point that would let me do stuff there. So I tried to find a warehouse for a one-off. Couldn't even find that. And then a buddy of mine sent me a Craigslist article that said, hey, what do you think about, like, we just try and get our own little venue. And I said, you know what? And he was saying that kind of in jest. Like, what if we had our own little place? And I was like, you know what? I think we can do this. So I contacted another friend who ran a skateboard company and just trying to get it off the ground. And I said, you know, hey, what, let's see if we can get like a couple of partners in this. The space was only basically $1,000 a month. It was a six-month lease for this commercial property, which is an insanely short-term lease for commercial property. I said, let's just lease this place for six months. It's 5% at 200 bucks each, and we'll see what we can make work. So... Basically, our full business was it was an indoor skateboarding park. So it was a skateboarding park during the day, and then we would do shows on the weekend. And so that became the wood shop. It was an old woodworking shop, and we just changed the name instead of W-O-O-D to W-O-U-L-D. Ha ha. I was an Allison Chains fan, so I think that added something to do with it as well. And, um, you know, it was like we had our own little space, and I was able to bring in people that I didn't really, I didn't really get to see. And it wasn't necessarily so much that people all of a sudden came there and saw me and were like, oh my God, you're so fucking talented. I have to book you for my party. It wasn't that. It was that these people that would never return my phone calls before, never return my email, never even really talk to me at a show, even when I'm trying to buy them a drink, you know, wouldn't even talk to me. Now all these people, all of a sudden, they're calling me. They're asking me to play their shows or they're trying to get me for their gigs and it's not like they thought I was a good DJ. It was because they wanted to use my venue. Because I finally had an asset in this town. Which was, I had an underground warehouse that went past 2 a.m. 
So as most of the venues shut down at 2 o'clock, now all of a sudden I had something that ran from mm. 2 to 6 a.m. I had something that no one else had in this town. And that's when it opened up to me. The fact that, you know, it's not about your talent or what you've done somewhere else. As great as that may be, they, and those all may be true, right? It's what do you have to offer that no one else does? What do you have to contribute that that is going to bring a piece of the puzzle to the table? Because let's be honest, especially as we just said, right? It's, we're not in bands anymore. When everyone used to be in a band and you play guitar, I play bass, someone else played drums. It takes several people just to be in a band. Now everyone's a DJ, mm-hmm. right? Everyone's a fucking DJ now. So like now that everyone's a DJ and you just have more DJs. Everyone's a DJ. Everyone yeah. thinks they should be up there playing instead of you. So it wasn't like I came here and just started writing prolific music. It was I had to do the hustle and that just made me realize that there's many other there, there are many other facets that you have to do. You know, it became the warehouse, it became promoting, it became DJing, writing music, running the record label, doing the festival. Because I'm not great at anything. And there's very few people that actually are great at any one of those things where you're so good at it that that talent, that greatness in and of itself is going to carry you through, right? Where your music, as I like to say, is just so transcendent that it doesn't matter how much of a douchebag you are, that people are just going to play your music anyway. My music isn't that good. I'm not that good as a DJ, so I have to do all the other little stuff that comes in to make that be a part of it, Mm -hmm. to be able to get a gig, to, to just... Have your name in the conversation just to be in and of itself. And then, yes, maybe your talent will take you somewhere. I mean, that you did have a good set or that you had a really cool track. Yeah, hopefully that'll matter at some point and that we'll be able to play off. But until then, you need to do all the, or I need to too. I mean, it's not going to work for, for everyone, but I need to do all the little things yeah. that I had to do. Yeah, I have a, a sort of little like saying I came up with there. It's, it's the three P's. It's there's produce perform and promote it's hard to be amazing at all three it's it's kind of like i mean some people can do all three some crazy motherfuckers can but it's pretty much people like us it's like pick two and i mean i mean but even then i mean what are you doing that no one else has done before exactly there's a million promoters and a million producers and a million djs so it's you know what separated me in this town it was a venue it Mm -hmm. wasn't any of those it was a fucking venue and then even now, what separates me from other people? It's Great American Techno Fest. It's having a festival. Yeah. It's having a boutique festival. It's having a festival that we at least have an identity to, that it's American techno, whereas opposed to the myriad of other festivals that are out there right now that do not have an identity. What, I mean, what, what do you know what they, what they stand for? Mm-hmm. You know, That's not saying they're good or bad, but you just don't even know. At least ours has an identity that separates ourselves. So you really have to and here's the other thing that I really like to communicate to people I mean I still have to do other jobs this isn't my full job I have to do other work to make a living there's very very few that can really make a living doing this but it's also my hobby and it's also something that I really do love and we all need to have a hobby we all need to have something that we love on the side so even if this can't be my job for a living and even if I have to do odd jobs or Go back to law school or be a barista at Starbucks or whatever. You still need to have a job that you love. Whether it's rec league basketball or playing poker or going backpacking or sewing or whatever it is. Mm. Have something that you love. And if it's DJing, just do it. And then, you know, a lot of people are like, well, I want to play. I do love to DJ. I love to DJ. I just need an opportunity and I want to play. Then throw your own party. Do it. Mm. Throw your own party. It's, it's not hard. 
You know, you don't have to have 100 people show up. Through a house party for 10, 15 people that is just as fun, you know. As, way as cheaper. Do, way cheaper <laughs> and a lot more fun, you know. Just like, just throw a party. Be somewhat creative about it. Like, if you want to play, book your own party. I'm sorry. Everyone's a DJ. Everyone's a promoter now. They're not going to book you. Even me, they're not going to book me for all this sort of stuff. As much as I've done here... There is no reason to expect anyone to book me for a gig from here on out for anything else. I've just got to put my stuff out. I'm going to do it myself. And if no one wants to book me, so what? Do my own thing. Yeah. You know. So the wood, the wood shop, when did that, the, the original wood, how many wood shops have there been now? There have been two or three. Three wood shops. Three. Okay, so the one we've been talking about is the second one, correct? The, well, I mean, the one you showed up at was number two. Number two, yeah. So that was from when to when, and why did that end? Well, they're all they're all in like one year commercial leases. You just yeah. your time frame is very limited in them to begin with. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you're renting commercial property. You're trying to do um, an underground illegal venue. You're on the clock the minute you get there. You're lucky if you even get that lease anyway. So. You know, it's just about using the space and using it as constructively as you can and not trying to blow it up. Not trying to let too many crews use it because the crews don't care about you at all. All they care about is their party and that's it. No matter what they tell you, they they do not care about you. They do not care about your space. All they care about is making sure their party goes off and then whatever happens, happens. Mm -hmm. I mean, if they get, if the party gets busted, they're not going to take the fall. It's your venue. So you just have to be ridiculously, ridiculously careful about it. So, you yeah, know, careful business for sure. <laughs> well, it's not a business, and that's the other thing. If you look at going in the illegal underground warehouse thing as a business, you're going in it all wrong. You need to look at it as an avenue to get your music out there, or you need to use it as a way to book the stuff that no one else is going to do. If you go into it, if you're looking at it and doing a business. That you need to promote and and do shows through through legal regular venues. Yeah. Um, if you're going for for more an artistic artistic creative um, autonomous control, then get your own venue. Yeah. You know, you can always rent someone else's venue for a one off and have that. But there's just an an amazing amount of creative control that you have when you have your own place, and you don't have to do something there Thursday, Friday, and Saturday night every week. But you can wait months in between times, and you can switch the setup around. You can completely change the drinks around. You can completely change the aesthetic of the music and the visuals and all that sort of stuff. You should fucking do that, okay? That's the point of having a space like that. Beta can't do that. A regular club can't do that. They need to just basically have it ready to go, cookie cutter set, ready to go each night, and be able to pump different stuff in. Mm-hmm. So, and there's nothing wrong with that. So yeah. So, you had the wood shop, and did you start? Uh, how how deep into having the wood shop did you start doing Great American Techno Festival? Or when was the first year of the festival? Then first year of Great American Techno Fest was two thousand eleven, and we just finished our year four. So I still had the first wood shop then. Yeah. Oh okay. So yeah, the I the first Great American Techno Festival I attended would have been in two thousand twelve. And that would have been the second wood shop that you had, where the droid party. Mm-hmm. That was the weekend I moved here. That was so. 
Great American Techno Festival already has a, a sort of like special place for me because even even though the date changed this year, it's still kind of like the clock of the first weekend that I moved here and that like legitimized. Or I mean, I I was officially lived here and not in Iowa anymore, so that's pretty cool. What a uh, what inspired you to do the festival in the first place? Um, well, I guess nothing really inspired us to do it. It was just a half-brained idea that, you know, sometimes when you're, you had a couple of beers, it sounds great and um, sounds better when you're when you're saying it, and then when it actually when it actually works. Um, you know, the problem is that basically. We, we thought of the idea as a way to... There's Great American Beer Festival in Denver, first of all. It's been going on for over 30 years. It's great. And the, the initial idea was we want to do Great American Beer Fest and Great American Techno Fest simultaneously. That the Beer Fest is bringing in 50,000 people a year. And that if we can somehow just get... One percent, half a percent of this fifty thousand people. That's five hundred more people. That's two hundred fifty more people that are going to be showing up that have never showed up before um, to our events. But the problem is, it didn't work. The problem is that people that came in for the beer fest, they get way too wasted during the beer fest, you know, and they're they're drinking beer all day, and by the time they show up to our events, they're either way too wasted, inebriated, or they just won't come. Um, so what do you do? You know, it's, it's kind of hard to like really do anything if people aren't showing up for your shit. Um, but the one thing that did help was we at least had an identity because Great American Beer Fest is about all American craft beer. You know, it's not about the Budweiser's and the Miller's and the Michelob's. It's about, you know, the, the Odell's mm-hmm. and the Newcastle, and then not Newcastle, but the New Belgium's and and the smaller breweries, mm-hmm. the Great Divide, stuff like that. So we said, okay, let's make Great American Techno Fest the same way. Let's celebrate American Craft Techno. So that was the idea, was, okay, at least we're going to do American Craft Techno. And so even though our idea of doing it simultaneously at this, at, with Beer Fest didn't work, at least we had an idea that people could identify with, that could resonate with it. Said, hey, American techno, that's cool. And it gave us an identity as a festival. And then that, with that, we were able to run with it. Mm-hmm. And so that's what we've stuck with is an all-American, all-techno lineup year after year. And, you know, it's been good. We've, we've been happy with it. Uh, we just finished year four this year. And honestly, I feel like, um, you know, we've done a, a really good job with, with, you know, we've kind of pigeonholed ourselves with what it is but by the same time it, it has given us something that people can identify with yeah absolutely I definitely agree with that being here for only missing one of them man for sure it's cool to see how it's changed over the years so well, how, how do you feel it's changed over the years well I mean as we were growing it I wanted to get it bigger and bigger and bigger and hopefully get up to Red Rocks and you know Five, six thousand people, seven thousand people, just kind of like those state palace massives that I was going to back in the day. But honestly, I can't stand I can't stand parties like that anymore. I don't like five, six thousand people. And I mean, call me elitist. It's just techno just doesn't feel right in that environment. It feels better in a sweaty basement with a hundred yeah. to two hundred people. In That's there. a good point. With an off offshoot venue, it's just 
the music just doesn't sound right in places like that. It sounds better. And so I feel like it'd be disingenuous for me if I don't enjoy the music as a consumer or even as a DJ to play that sort of stuff to try and sell that to my audience. So this year we made a pretty drastic shift and tried to just really turn around from this trajectory of growing it and growing it and growing it from, you know, 350 our first year at, at our biggest event to, you know, 500 the next year at our biggest event to, you know, we had 1,100 last year at our biggest event. You know, we're steadily growing to this year, all of a sudden, only doing 300 festival passes. And just part of that was we were doing a different venue that we didn't have a huge capacity in. And then just wanting to honestly just make it more authentic, make it more our thing where um, we're not at the mercy of other venues where we're using our own authentic venue that we that we popped up and we brought a sound system in, we brought our lights in, our security, our lineup. And you know, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. Where if people didn't like it, it was at least all on us. It couldn't be blamed on Bayer, it couldn't be blamed on Morad. It was at least our fault. And I felt like this year at least people had the best, and obviously you'd have to ask them, not me, but I feel like for the people who attended this year, I feel like the quality of the experience inside the venue was better than any other year that we've had. Yeah, I, I felt that for sure, man. So Well, the, the venue alone, too, was, was so awesome. Well, I mean, just for people who don't know, where was the... Well, we used a parkour gym in South Denver. So we, you know, again, I like the idea of just using a place that is different because as a consumer, I'm tired of going to the same places over and over. I'm tired mm-hmm. of seeing, and it doesn't mean they're bad venues. Yeah. It doesn't mean they're bad spaces. It's just, you want to be in a different place. You want to be on a different dance floor and see different lights and hear, hear a different sound system. So just my to, favorite place to, to even go uh, in Colorado was the parkour gym in, in, in uh, Boulder. In Boulder. Yeah. So like that was, it was super refreshing to see something that was even like twice as big, you know, like. It was a giant space. It's a giant space, and and obviously we struggle with sound because of that in there. But um, but it felt like it was a good space. Felt like it worked out well for for a party, and and hopefully you as a consumer had a good time. Absolutely, man. So, yeah, I mean, as a consumer, like I can, I can say for sure, uh, Thursday night my highlight was Oon. Oon played an awesome set, and he's one of the Midwest. Kansas heavy heavy, te- or heavy techno guys, but uh, definitely the the highlight was uh, Friday night uh, with Alala One Blondes Pittsburgh Track Authority and Ava- or Avalon Emerson was it was just the entire night it was hard to leave the floor it was awesome. it was That's so good and <clears throat> I know my girlfriend Rianne and <laughs> had had it a, an amazing experience too which. She well, that was awesome, and she mentioned something, you know, just about the fact to have female DJs like Alayla and then Avalon, um, you know, inspiring for her to have women up there playing vinyl to open and close the party, and it's something that we didn't do intentionally, it wasn't, I can't stand ladies night type of stuff, I feel that is kind of chauvinistic and sexist, but... There are not enough women that are given opportunities. It's way skewed male-dominated. And part of the reason I feel that way is women like your girlfriend don't see enough women up on stage to feel like I can do that. You know, like they can do that. Um, And so that was really good to see her. And she told me that she messaged Avalon. I talked to Avalon about that. And she she got Rihanna's message and thought that was really sweet. But it's what we want to see. You want to just see... 
women in the crowd feeling like we need more women involved. Oh, in this. We, just, we just do. And it's not for a fact that I always argue with my with a buddy of mine that the dance, he's like the dance floor needs to be sexy and there need to be girls on it. I don't feel that way at all. What I feel like is you just need women in prominent decision making positions. You need women in prominent creative artistic decisions mm-hmm. because that will just help the overall feeling of the party. It's not about women looking good dancing on the dance floor. I mean, take it or leave it. Most of the music I've been into has been mostly male skewed anyway. Good music. <laughs> it's good music. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, good music is good music, right? Regardless of of whether it's male or female. I don't really care about that. But what I do care about is having women in decision-making positions. And a decision-making position is being a DJ. You're controlling the musical aesthetic of the party like that. And it just doesn't happen enough. And, um, and so hopefully we, we can, you know, it's, it's by nothing intentional. We just, you just need to get more women in the lineups, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And they're out there, man. Or they, they don't even know. They're, they're not, they're they not, they're, they're not out it. there. It's, they're not out there. I mean, honestly, I wish there were more women to tap into here. And it's something where, uh, I mean, I feel like we should be more proactive trying to foster that. Mm-hmm. I guess I'm just spoiled. <laughs> but, uh. Yeah, well, well, so I said my highlights. What were what were your highlights of the weekend? I mean, honestly, the I'm, I'm the worst person to ask. I mean, to ask the festival promoter himself. Mm-hmm. Um, not to be trite or anything, but um, I'm so closely tied to it. Yeah, you know, it's best to ask people that are a little more removed from it. But to to answer your question, um. I think the best part was just was Apex was the venue to be able to use a venue that we've never used before that no one has ever used before in Denver and then be able to really push that out and 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 try um, just try a new space it's important it's important and um, and we had difficulties with the sound the first night and I feel like we tried to fix it the second night and hopefully made improvements so mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm happy. I'm happy with it. I guess a, a, a better question then, because yeah, that is that is kind of putting you on the spot and whatnot. But uh, what what what's it like for you as John Templeton while the festival is going on? What is what is that what is that week like for you? Um, well, you try and prepare as much as ahead of time, and I don't feel like I did as good a job this year as I have in years past. But you try to prepare as much as ahead of time as you can. To be ready when it happens. The more you prepare, the more you're you're able to deal with the various situations that are going to come up. Because something's going to come up every day. Um, no matter how much you can prepare, something's going to arise. So you just you're just trying to be ready for it. You try to be cognizant of it and and handle it as best you can. I mean, it's definitely three to four hour nights of sleep, if that. Um, long, long twenty hour work days. You know, but I mean, it's what I, it's not what I do, but it's, I mean, I decided to do this. It's that time of the we, year. We could have quit if we wanted to, and I like the challenge. I like the stress um, as much as it may beat me down, and I may like to piss and moan and bitch about it to people. I do like it. If I didn't want to do it, I, w- I wouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. I could do something else. I could work for someone else. So I just enjoy the challenge. Mm-hmm. And, um, the week is the week is pretty stressful, but you know, wouldn't have it any other way. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and I, I can say, man, I mean, besides, I mean, the first one was great because that was, that was, you know, signified my, it tied the knot that I, that I was living here and like, this is, this was home now. But, uh, I, w- I would say this year was definitely my, uh, my best experience at the festival. It was, I, I really liked the, uh, just like the, the home, homey feeling of it all and, and the venue was awesome and the music was top notch. So great. I, I had, I had an amazing time this year. And That's good to hear. You should fill out a comment card and, and put it in the, in the lockbox. For and, sure. And anyone who else att- who attended definitely do that as well. But uh, so well, I mean, honestly, we want to hear from the people that didn't like it the most because mm-hmm. I mean, that's how you get better. I mean, compliments are great, and we do appreciate that. And obviously, we want to hone in on the stuff that people like. But it's about really finding out what people didn't like and how to improve on that. And, mm-hmm. You know, absolutely. So, what's the what does the future hold for Great American Techno Festival? Well, we're already starting to work on next year, and we're looking forward to it. Um, you know. We'll probably stick with the same dates and and try and bring back some of our favorites over the last couple of years. But yeah, I mean we're this is your this will be year five then. This will be year five coming up. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. So already already getting started on it. I mean we'll probably do second week of October again. And um, but yeah, I mean we just finished. So who knows? Yeah, what yeah. we're gonna do honestly. But mm-hmm. you um, think you'll stick with the. 300 or maybe a little more who, who knows it just, de- it just depends what the lineup was going to be yeah but yeah I like the more boutique style I really do I for really sure do. is that is that influence from Mutech no not, I wouldn't necessarily say it's an influence from Mutech so much as just a personal preference I just personally mm-hmm. enjoy a smaller crowd than I do yeah the basement setting like we were yeah. saying earlier yeah for sure well, cool, man. We'll uh, we'll start to kind of wrap this up. Uh, what uh, what's on the horizon for you as far as uh, gigs or, or shows or ideas? What, what's, what's what do you see in the near future for yourself? Well, we're finishing wrapping up the festival for right now, and then I head off for a couple of shows. Um, nowhere too far away, but. Uh, I am heading back to Europe at the uh, beginning of January, and then I'll be in Europe for January through March with some shows in Berlin and Italy and three Greece. months, two months, two months. Holy yeah, shit, just that's awesome. Bit. Yeah, so I mean, and that's also about just trying to get production work over there done. Um, working on a um, on a vinyl label to get started, so it's there's a lot of distributors and and people over there to to talk with. Um, also, a little vacation as well, but. You know, I go in the winter to Europe because that's the time when people are there and they're not down on the festival circuit and doing stuff. So it's a good time to get work done. And, um, so. Yeah, man. Uh, do you have you set any plans for Detroit? Because I know you got your you have a couple shows out there every year, don't you? For that. Uh, um, I've never done a show, but I've gotten booked the last couple of years for some for some off Detroit parties. If I get booked again, yeah, I'll definitely go back. I always enjoy. Um, being in Detroit, do you go regardless or? Um, yeah. I don't. Um, you know, there's a lot going on in May, and um, it's right before Mutech too. It's right before Mutech. I mean, I went to Mutech for the first time last year, and that was great. But you know, I just kind of uh, play it by ear, like to leave things open for. I mean, obviously, everyone's in Detroit for movement, so it's great to have a gig there if possible. So yeah, for sure. 
Well, cool, dude. Where, uh, if people want to hear your stuff or follow you, what, what websites or SoundCloud or where, where should they, where can they find you at? Well, you? the best place is probably a Great American Techno Fest site. It's just gatf.us. That's the simplest one. And then I, I am on SoundCloud as well. Um, just search John Templeton and um, you'll find me on there. And uh, Resident Advisor as well. I try and keep that page updated, but. Yeah, it should be pretty easy to find me, so. Right on, man. We're going to throw this mix on here in a second. What uh, what can we expect uh, for this mix here? A lot of it's a, a bunch of vinyl that I've just picked up over the last couple of months. Some old pieces thrown in there as well, but just kind of um, some of the more slower, um, I wouldn't necessarily say headier, but just stuff that's a little more laid back for listening time in your car or listening at home as opposed to more kind of the the club stuff that I would normally play. So just a, a little bit slower tempo, a little more equal, and, and kind of relaxed, but I feel like it, it'll have a good aesthetic for what we're, what we're trying to go for with the podcast. Awesome, man. Well, yeah, thanks thanks again for uh, being a, a guest on my show, and uh, we'll, we'll probably get you back on here in the future. Uh, but yeah, without further ado, this is uh, John Templeton's mix, and uh, thanks again, buddy, for being on the podcast for me. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Yep, no problem, man. All right, here you go, guys. John Templeton in the mix.